0: With your hosts, Gene steinberg and david Pierdi. so
1: we're having michael week here three weeks of michael michael horn michael miley and michael horn we had michael horn last week and now we have michael miley this week and david you've known him for a while can you tell us something about him
2: I first met Michael Miley when he was my editor during the publication of a long defunct magazine called Macintosh Today, um, which for those of you who are Mac fanatics know, this was like the main competitor to Mac Week for about a year and a half. I had met Michael through the publication. We had one of these instantaneous friendships. And um, as the years went by, I began to realize that Michael's interests lay far beyond simple technology and computers. That uh, Michael and I had a, a shared interest in all sorts of paranormal topics. And actually, Gene, the truth be told, Michael was one of the first people who got me to sort of talk about my UFO experiences, one of which I've spoken on on the show and a number of others that I haven't spoken about yet. And may or may not speak about in future episodes. But Michael is someone who um, I found myself very comfortable with talking about my paranormal experiences. And it turned out that his interest was very deep and really went beyond just things like UFOs and, and or hauntings and so forth. Michael had a very deep interest in the human spirit and in in understanding how our minds and our souls work together. And I found that very compelling. And I thought he would make a great, great guest for the Paracast because he is so well-rounded in his interests and brings so many different vantage points to the discussion. Uh, I I felt his open-mindedness would be... uh, would be compelling for us to talk about.
1: And also, it's a big change of pace. We focus so much lately on UFOs, reality and otherwise, and it's really good to be able to talk about something that covers in many ways a totally different area. But before we get to the Michael Miley interview, it's been a very interesting week. Since we (laughs) ran the interview with Michael Horn on the Billy Meyer Contacts, and David and I chimed in with some comments about the reality or non-reality of the claims. Since then, the impact has been rather interesting. There's been an extensive exchange, spirited exchange, between David and Michael. And maybe before we progress with this week's show, you could explain that and explain the end result which will be resolved, we hope, next week.
2: Well, to to describe it in a nutshell, um, I have always had severe problems with the Billy Meyer case. I've always had issues with the authenticity of the um, alleged photographic evidence. And unfortunately, I could not be part of the discussion last week, so I ended up essentially capping the show with you and mentioning uh, my problems and my feelings, my opinions about this case. I then um, sent Michael an email after the show. It seems like a lot more time has passed, but at this point, it's no more than a few days. Yeah. Um I sent Michael an email describing my feelings about the case that the fact that I felt that Billy Myers' motivations were less than scrupulous that uh, I felt that he was uh, essentially being less than honest and straightforward in the um information and in the evidence he was presenting and uh, actually told uh, Michael that I had problems with it. And this elicited a response that was uh, derogatory, that was vitriolic, that was very harsh. And and actually, some of this discourse is available on the Paracast forum. I've posted some of these things, and in the next week and a half, I will be posting the entire email exchange between uh, Mr. Horn and myself so that our listeners can get an idea of um, the communications methods of this person and what i consider to be an unreasonable level of defensiveness in not addressing any of my questions or concerns but simply postulating a bunch of theories about what billy meyer's experiences were citing a bunch of witnesses without any kind of verification no kind of notarized documentation nothing nothing outside of hearsay and and i called michael on that and uh, his response was essentially to challenge me To prove that any of it was fake, so I took one of the images that they put forward as definitive evidence, uh,
1: and I proved it was a fake. As simple as that. He really did. But now, during the course of this conversation, Michael and David got into a discussion about possibly having Michael return to the Mm -hmm. Paracast. So Mm -hmm. next week, I don't know if I want to call it a great debate, but what's (laughs) going to happen is that Michael and David
2: will... Network. (laughs) Well, we'll get a chance. He'll get a chance to hear me face to face, voice to voice, as it were, uh, stating my feelings about the Billy Meyer case and stating some of the problems that I feel are inherent in it. It's that simple.
1: And so that's going to be on next week's episode of The Paracast. Michael Horn, the official American media representative of the Billy Meyer Contacts, and David Biedney, And they'll be talking about a whole range of subjects, and we don't know how it's going to play out yet, but they're definitely committed to working together on the air to talk about the issues that concern them. And I think you listeners will be fascinated. And as David said, if you go to theparacast.com, we already have a message form open called Michael Horn and the Billy Meyer Contacts. So we invite your comments, your criticisms, and David's going to post a lot of information there for you to study. And we hope that you folks will address that. And there's just one more thing. What's that? Well, we have also posted a poll where you can vote as to whether or not you believe the Billy Meyer Contacts are genuine. It's your opinion. You can express yes, no. We're not sure, and that's in the Paracast forums at theparacast.com. Another point of reference, if you want to write to us about this or any other subject, send your letter to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com, and... We welcome any suggestion. If you hate us, if you love us, if you have a suggestion <laughs> for a guest, we'd like to have it. Now, a couple of weeks back, we were also supposed to have Dr. Stephen Greer on the program. and the Disclosure Greer Project, had a, right? Of the Disclosure Project. Yeah. And he had a tragedy in his family and wasn't able to make it. I've been in touch with the Greer family, and it looks like we'll have him on later in the month of July. Oh, good. So we look forward to that. Cool. And we have a lot of other guests who are going to come on. I can't tell you who they are yet because David and I are working out all the details. But we've got some really fascinating information that's going to come by. It's not Al Gore's us. coming
0: on?
2: Who? Al Gore? I don't think so. <laughs> Why? He's on everything else. He can't come to speak to us about um, global warming? Well, has he seen any UFOs?
1: Or can he tell us that global warming is really a conspiracy by the international bankers? Well, I don't know.
2: The guy was the vice president. You think he might have had access to some documents that we'd be interested in, don't you think? Of course. He also is on the board of directors of Apple Computer, and certainly he has
1: access to documents about their... Maybe he knows about the next iPod. He knows about the iPod. That's right. Maybe maybe he knows about the iPod. Forget about everything else. We can get Al Gore on here and say, Mr. Vice President, can you answer any questions about the iPod? about the next generation of <laughs> Macintosh computers, about Mac OS 10.5. He
2: doesn't care. <laughs> he just gets the free gear. He doesn't care about what Apple really does. Actually, no, he probably does. And uh, we can also ask him about when Tripper Gore would get on stage with my buddies at the uh, of the Flying Other Brothers Band and play drums to uh, when they were playing covers of Grateful Dead songs. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. What is here is that you're in the PowerCast.
0: Not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandley. You never know
3: what's going to happen next. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rights, passwords, initiations, and handshakes. Where the truth remains hidden, and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history, and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier.
4: She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the Rockoids. The The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack Attack of the Rockoids. Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com That's www.rockoids.com Attack Attack of the Rockoids Rockoids. in the great Science fiction tradition.
2: So this week, I'll actually start off by saying that Gene, I want to apologize for not being here to have fun with you and Michael Horn last week. It
1: was uh, just joyous. <laughs> I'll tell you, tonight, it was, you know, it was like I'd ask him one
2: question, and he'd give me four thousand answers. Well, tonight we're going to have an old friend of mine, uh, Michael Miley, on who we can ask uh, four thousand questions, and he'll give us one answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll
5: buy that. Uh, not, not likely. <laughs> Michael,
2: ha- have you ever dealt with uh, uh, with this guy, Horn, and, and what do you know about this guy? Not not to start us off on the wrong topic, but mm. I know that you've done some research uh, into UFO stuff. By the way, we're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney and oh. paranormal researcher Michael Miley, oh. an old friend of mine, who um, knows a lot about the paranormal. We're going to talk about some different topics tonight in the in the paranormal realm but michael what do you think about this billy meyer stuff and
5: you know i you know I haven't really done any sort of in-depth investigation of the Meyer stuff. I've only had two exposures to it, really, Uh, both in UFO conferences where the sort of the Meyer team gave their shtick at this one UFO conference, and then later where Horn gave a sort of PR take on, you know, on the Billy Meyer stuff. And I've seen some of the books with the photographs of the UFOs uh, supposedly appeared over the area in Switzerland, you know, and I've seen some of the drawings that have been done of the supposed Pleiadian beings and things like that and you know it's all very intriguing and it's what what you would call a classic contactee case which has been sort of orchestrated through the years as being this major contact and all the prophecies that he supposedly gave and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and one of the things I'd say just sort of as a um, sort of a typical response that I have to contactee cases is that often these things start out with some sort of real UFO event and then become sort of an elaboration of that event when the event stops. Mm -hmm. So it could have a genuine root in it, in some real UFO event, but then later... You know, because he's got to sort of produce it at will, he then starts to doing the hoaxing. So that's sort of my general take on the Billy Meyer thing. But I have to be, you know, perfectly honest and say that I have not done an in-depth investigation of the case. So all of that should be taken with a grain of salt. Okay. Do you get the sense
1: here, do you get the sense, Michael, that this might have happened with some of these so-called UFO contactees? That, number one, there there are two things that might be going on here. Number one is they had some kind of experience at one time and felt good to be in the limelight. So, of course, they manufactured a few more experiences to enhance it. Or, and I think this was the case with George Adamski in the 50s, that he had a particular message of peace and brotherhood to spread. Right. But if it comes from George Adamski, you wouldn't believe it because he was a guy who worked as a photographer or something or as a hot dog vendor, I forget, over at the Mount Palomar Observatory job. in the 50s. So yeah. he sees the movie Day the Earth Stood Still. And he sees Michael Rennie, the character, this majestic character wearing the silver suit. And he manufactures a case involving him meeting a guy in the desert who looks like the Michael Rennie character. And if the Space Brothers give you this message of peace and brotherhood, you say, yeah, wow. But if some hot dog vendor does it, okay, sure. Right. That might be what well, you're know, I mean, here.
5: Because somebody's a hot dog vendor doesn't mean they can't have a UFO experience. You know, I wouldn't use that as a criteria for judging whether something is true.
1: No, right you now. judge it by the evidence. It's just yeah, you one judge, reason. judge
5: it by the evidence. You know, and you know one of the things that's often said about the difference between what is called the sort of abduction phenomena and the you know, the contactee phenomena that was, you know, big 50s, heyday stuff, was that uh, these guys saw the limelight, these contactees, and abductees generally don't see the limelight at all. In fact, are very afraid to even talk about their experience because they think people are you know, going to say they're crazy. You know, that's often made as a contrast between, you know, contactees and abductees, but it's a sticky wicket, you know. Any sort of contact experience is going to be fraught um, with, interpretation of, you know, of course belief system. and so let's say they have an encounter they don't understand it's going to be mm-hmm. built through the belief system
2: the lens yeah. of their mind i mean and that's actually really what we're going to talk about tonight is the fact that all of these experiences are essentially parsed through our interface to the world our, our minds right? Sure, yeah.
5: Yeah.
2: and uh... and this vessel that carries this mind uh, our brain and our body uh... the main interface we have to reality actually the only interface we have to reality or, or is it michael
5: yeah well you know this is uh, one of the themes i wanted to discuss tonight um, and i thought i would put it in the context of some of my own experiences because these things are very multi-layered and because it goes through the layers of the mind it's very very hard to see what's, uh, what's exactly happening and of course you know in the modern day we've got a sort of materialist assumption about the way the world works that makes it difficult to interpret some of these uh, phenomena that we experience, you know, in psychedelics or mystical experiences or visionary states or out-of-body experiences, you know, to try to give um, some sort of larger interpretive scheme to them that doesn't just reduce it to hallucinations. So, you know, I thought I'd start with um, talking a, a little bit about um, some things that happened to me in my childhood, and I think these are very typical. One of the things that occurred to me in my childhood over and over again is out-of-body experiences. And uh, I can put this in the context of a traumatized kid. I had a violent father who sort of wreaked havoc in the the, uh, family life. And a typical thing that happens when young kids are in a situation like that, it certainly happened to me, is that they sort of dissociate from their experience in some ways. So I began to have, like at the age of six and seven, I began to have nightmares for about three or four years where I would uh, sleepwalk. I'd go around the house in the middle of the night, I would turn on the lights, I would be crying, and then I'd go back to bed, and then in the morning I wouldn't remember anything. This was a visible sign that I was sort of traumatized. But there was another thing that was going on that I was able to recover later Later on when I started practicing meditation. What, in fact, was happening to me during those times is that I was having a lot of out-of-body experiences. And my theory about the sleepwalking was that sometimes I would have the same impulse to leave the body, but it wouldn't make it. And that's when I would do the sleepwalking.
2: If you would, Michael, describe the out-of-body experience. I mean, how did this manifest itself? How did it, okay. how did it feel?
5: Yeah. Here's a, here's a classic uh, classic um, experience that I remember very vividly. And then I'll relate it to a, a later experience that I had in 1970. I remember very distinctly two experiences. One in which uh, it was in the middle of the night, and I suddenly woke up in the dining room. Everyone else is asleep, and I'm in this energy field standing in the midst of uh, the dining room, you know, right close to the dining room table. And I'm struck by the fact that my hands no longer feel like hands, but they feel like these huge energy mitten. And I'm buzzing from head to toe. And I don't quite know what has happened, but then it occurs to me, oh, my God, I'm out of my body. I wonder if I can go through the door. So I sort of floated over to the door leading to the uh, downstairs stairwell which went out onto the front porch, and I literally passed through the door. And as I passed through the door, it was like passing through an interference field where the field of my body, as it passed through the material of the door, I could feel it, feel it sort of like stroking, you know, the depth of the the energy body. And then I just sort of floated down the stairway out onto the front porch, and it was a moonlit night, and I just stood there, and that's the last thing I remember. I had another experience when I was roughly around the same age where I came to myself uh, and this was during a sleepwalking incident and I was literally floating near the ceiling watching my body, you know, six feet below me being propelled along the kitchen linoleum. And as I saw my body, I sort of swooped down from the ceiling and merged with it and woke up in the midst of this sleepwalking state. Hmm. So those were two experiences I had when I was a kid. And I I had other ones where I I remember flying around the neighborhood, you know, jumping from, you know, garage top to garage top. I lived in Chicago. I grew up in, you know, the west side of Chicago. And, you know, so those are some of my childhood experiences.
0: Enter another dimension, you've entered the Paracast.
1: In the PowerCast, we're talking to Michael Miley, a paranormal investigator, and we've been discussing a number of early subjects, including experiences he had when he was quite young. David, you wanted to pick up on this.
2: Yeah, Michael, I want to understand how you differentiate these experiences from what – and again, I've got to play devil's advocate here yeah, – what could possibly it. be, you know, dreams or, or, or a, a dream state. How do you sort of draw the line between dream state and an out-of-body experience?
5: Okay, well, you know, for me, it's sort of like night and day. When I dream, I see a movie in a sort of an internal landscape. It's not three-dimensional. I mean, I know some people have really vivid dreams that seem like they're, you know, they're right in the midst of them. But the, it's the difference between dreaming where you're in a stationary location and watching a little movie in your head and being physically in a location just as if you went into a room, you know, and said hello to your friends. I mean, it's, the difference is night and day as far as I'm concerned. Now, when we get into lucid dreaming, then there's some more ambiguity. So and I've talked to lucid dreamers where, who, they, when, when they say that they feel like they're in a reality that's as vivid as the physical reality. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is terminology. You know, when we talk about lucid dreams, I asked a lucid dream researcher, I said, what's the difference between an out body and a lucid dream? And uh, she said, well, they sort of blend into each other. Hmm. So, you know, I said to her, well, can you actually launch into an out-of-body state from a lucid dream? And she said, yes.
2: Well, I would think that an out-of-body experience could potentially yield some kind of tangible evidence like the you know oh, yeah. observing sort of a, a, a an actual event happening versus what would be you know a lucid dream which would be essentially a fabrication of the mind and I, and I just have to say most of the time when I dream it, it must be lucid dreaming because I feel like I'm in the environment it's never that I'm watching it I'm always it's always very visceral and in exactly. fact uh, that's how the emotions manifest themselves I feel like I'm having the emotions like that tightness in the chest right that's what happens to me in the dream state and these to full-color dreams, right?
5: Yeah, uh, they do, yeah. do that. They breathe, they have full-color dreams, and they feel like they're embodied. You know, I can only speak from my experience, I mean, when it comes to these sorts of things. I was going to talk about another experience which will, I think will help illustrate the difference between having a lucid dream and having an out-of-body experience, because this one occurred from a full waking state. So. This was in 1970. This was kind of a you know, post-year of doing psychedelics, so my sort of psyche was all sort of shaken up. We can talk a little bit about that, too. Anyway, I woke up in the middle of the night. It was 2 o'clock. I had a luminous style clock in my room. That's how I knew what time it was. I was lying in bed. I was very relaxed. I was not asleep because I had just, you know, kind of sort of gotten up a little bit and looked at the clock and went back to lie down, and I had the bed covers over me, and I was sort of opening and closing my eyes, and I was remarking to myself how odd it was that it seemed as if I could see through my eyelids, that I could see the room around me even when my eyelids were closed. And then I noticed that the the, um, the darkness seemed to be rather pixelated. I felt as if I was looking into like a photon field, and everywhere I looked, there were these little pinpoints of light They started to get larger and larger, like little cashews. So I'm lying there, and just sort of marveling at this weird kind of altered state that I'm in when the vibration began in the soles of my feet. And this vibration passed up through my legs until it filled my whole body. So it felt as if every cell in my body was vibrating. And then the vibrations started to get faster and faster. And then I began to lift up off the bed. And I'm assuming, of course, that I wasn't levitating, that I was actually leaving the body. When I got about... Six, eight, ten inches above my reclining body in the bed, I felt as if my consciousness sort of just flooded the room like a a spherical sight. I felt as if I could feel every corner of the room and see it all simultaneously in one view. And I got terrified. I thought, Oh my God, I'm dying. You know, and I was raised a Catholic, so at at times like this, you know, (laughs) your Catholicism rues its ugly head. And I said, Oh sweet Jesus, you know, please don't let me die. And the whole thing reversed i started to float back down the vibrations went from very fast to slow and i merged with my body and then i was able to sit up in bed turn on the light and i was freaked out and i was thinking what just happened to me how old were you again I was um this was nineteen seventies, so I was nineteen. Okay. And um of course after it happened I cursed myself for getting scared because it was really clear that I had a fully conscious thought of what experience. And um then i did some later research and i recovered the memories that i previously described to you as a childhood you know, in my childhood where i had these you know out-of-body states you know um and the way i recovered those memories is interesting enough in itself i i took the self-hypnosis class and we did uh, certain countdown in, inductions and i began to practice getting up in the middle of the night let's say one or two in the you know morning going to the bathroom coming back, and then practicing a sort of compound technique where you're trying to get your body in a state of catalopsy. These are sort of visible signs that you're getting into a sort of hypnotic trance. And once I uh, got pretty good at this, I was able to tell when my brain waves would lengthen out. I felt as if they went from a kind of a beta alpha state into these very long theta waves, and I could feel it was almost as if I just step outside into this expanse and one night when I was practicing this stuff and I got into this altered state all of a sudden all of those childhood memories of out-of-body experiences flooded back to me and I remembered them as if they had happened
1: and you <laughs> feel they were real memories not something that They're they had absolutely been caused real memories
5: because I remember yes. the the incident particularly I mean I had another out-of-body experience in the middle of the afternoon when I was a kid when I, was, I had come home from school feeling sick and I had taken a nap and I had sort of half woken up and rolled out of the body and then stood up and then passed through the door again and this time it was, you know, in the middle of the day, so there was sunlight and I was out of my body and I was in this energy body and it was the same sort of experience that I had had, you know, at night when I had done the sleepwalk and stuff. Mm-hmm. So- And the theory about that is quite simple, is that I had to get into a brainwave frequency state that was similar to what I had experienced when I was a child to recover the memories, which says something very interesting about the way memories are stored in the physical brain. You have to have some kind of brainwave frequency Synchronicity with the state in order to re- remember what happened in that
2: state. I mean, I have to ask this, Michael, because you yeah, know, yeah, you've in, you, well, you've indicated that you've you've had psychedelic experiences that yeah. you know makes me question. At nineteen, uh, when this yeah. happened, <laughs> were you sober?
5: Oh, you mean when I had the uh, the vibration thing? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was I was by 1970 I had to quit doing psychedelics because it was it was too traumatic for me. I started to have bad trips and I just sort of gave it up. So this was roughly about six months after I quit doing psychedelics. Okay.
1: Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits
2: paracast with gene steinberg and david Biedney. you never know what's going to happen next
1: i want to want to ask you something about that in a second you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david Biedney. we're talking to michael miley a paranormal investigator and right now we're hearing about out of body experiences and i'm going to ask you the question which it's probably not really applicable but i'm sure our listeners wonder about so i've got to ask the question you don't think that your partaking of psychedelic substances cause these things to happen do you
5: well you know that's a tricky question because the the follow-up question usually is you know don't you think it was a hallucination and therefore untrue or well that's not
1: really what i was going to bring but sure
5: yeah but you know, this this really gets into what psychedelics do, and, you know, we're still in the process of trying to investigate what what, that, what psychedelics actually do to the mind-body system. We don't really fully understand how it is that psychedelics have the effect that they do. There's been a lot of study done, and there's various theories about, you know, self neurotransmitters neural transmitters and things like that. I mean, these are all important and interesting questions. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to answer that question, but I think we need to reserve a discussion of, The effects of psychedelics when I start talking a little bit more about that. I think, um, and I'm happy to do, I'm happy to talk about some of my psychedelic experiences, which is one of the things I suggested I talk about to David. But I want to just get back to the out of body thing before we actually talk about the psychedelics. Um, Because the first question that always arises is is a way to verify that people actually, something actually leaves the physical body? And if so, that, if that could be verified, then it would be sh- true.
2: Right, then you'd have um, a yardstick to measure it by. Yeah,
5: exactly. Right. Then you'd have a yardstick, and then you could no longer just say, put it down to either hallucination, or lucid dreaming, or something along those lines. Right. So what's important is to look at what kind of scientific research has been done into out of body experience to validate that something actually leaves the body. So there has been some research, not anywhere near as much as in other psi areas like um, remote viewing and things like that. In the 60s, late 60s, there was an experiment done by Charles Todd, who's a psychologist and a psi researcher. Um, He did a couple of experiments. He did one with a very famous out-of-body experiencer by the name of Robert Monroe, who actually founded the Monroe Institute back east, which is one of the big research facilities for studying out-of-body experience. And um, he had Monroe leave his body over a period of nine trials and try to read this number counter behind his head, and Monroe failed in all nine attempts which is really kind of interesting in itself because Monroe um, had lots of out-of-body experiences. So why he failed is another interesting question, and we can actually get into that. Then Tart tested this woman he calls Mrs. V., to do the same sort of thing, and she succeeded reading the number. And um, how many was, times? You know, experiments. She only done it did it twice. Hmm. So then she, and I don't know the I don't know the um, the reasons for this, but then Tart wanted to test her more, and for some reason she, you know, he couldn't find her, he couldn't locate her, whatever. So that was one experiment. There was another experiment done in the early seventies with Keith Harey, done by um, a psychic uh, research group in North Carolina. And in this time, they had Seaturer leave his body and go to a room where his pet cat was in a sort of crystal clear box with all of these um, squares marked out in the box. So... What they noted was that when the cat was by itself and Keith Rowery was not doing out-of-body experiences, the cat was roaming around in the box and was trying to, you know, get out of the box and all this other stuff. But when Keith would actually leave his body and go into the room where the cat was, the cat would sit perfectly still in the box and not meow or do anything. Every time? Yeah, all four times that it was attempted, or maybe it was Mm -hmm. even more than four times. So that was interesting because the cat's, you know, you always hear about cats and dogs perceiving things that human beings cannot perceive. So that was a, a second set of experiments. A third set of experiments, and really the most interesting of all, was done by uh, two parapsychological researchers by the name of Carlos Osis and uh, Donna McCormick, and this was in the late 70s. What they did was something even more interesting. The out-of-body expert was uh, guided by the name of Alex Tanis. And what they did is they devised a shielded chamber into which they put a viewfinder and they also put um, these strain gauge sensors uh, in the view, in the in the box. And uh, Alex Tannis didn't even know about these strain gauge sensors. The purpose of those was, of course, to see if any energy fluctuations occurred in the box. Mm-hmm. And then they had Tanis in another room, leave his body, and go into the box. And the viewfinder would change this image, change these images sort of at random, and look at the viewfinder see the image, and then come back to his body and report what he saw. He did, this is really quite fascinating, there was something like, the experiment did 197 trials, and it resulted in 114 hits, which means that he was able to tell what the image was, and 83 misses. And these were extended over 20 different sessions. Most importantly, however, was that when Alex Tanis got a hit, they also registered, fluctuations on the strain gauge sensors, which registered the fluctuation on the Beckman polygraph. So that means that there was a very precise correlation between the time that he got hits and the time that the strain gauge sensors were registering on the Beckman polygraph. Hmm. Really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was totally fascinating. So... That's one of the most I would call the veridical experiments done to indicate that something leaves the body during an out of body experience. And the sad story is that that experiment, that precise experiment, and maybe with some slight variations, needs to be re- replicated. And for some reason, out of body experience has been sh- very short changed in the science research community. Why? So, yeah. That's a good question. I don't know why. I don't know why that. that I think it's because you know, scientists look for something that they uh intimately trust is repeatable, and the idea that some sometimes people can leave the body and sometimes they're not able to for, you know, they ate something wrong or their energy is low or for whatever reason it's unreliable, I think has sort of removed it from these sorts of experiments. That's just a guess but i I think that that experiment was fascinating and very promising, and showed at least in that case that the best explanation is that something actually left the body and went inside the box else tennis was out of his energy body went into the box, and then he saw these images.
2: Well, it sounds like this kind of a a field of of study, Michael, would be of a lot of interest to, I mean, not to take it in the conspiracy direction, but wouldn't the military want to have this ability? I mean, if this were something actual, wouldn't they be on top of it? That's one of the directions I was thinking about, too, David. Yes, military
5: applications. Well, you know, what the military did, the military actually took it in a slightly different direction. People talk about remote viewing and out-of-body experiences. Right. You know, sort of similar things. The military spent millions of dollars on studying remote viewing for for reasons of uh, espionage. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that's a whole other story. The, um, you know, in the 70s, I think it was uh, Ingo Swan, who was being tested by Gertrude uh, Smidler in New York, at uh, one of the psychical the societies there he could, uh, he could go to other parts of the country uh, and describe what the weather systems were and uh, he was very good at this and um, he decided uh, and he wrote some papers on it and he decided that he wanted to get funding for more research and um, SRIs, the Stanford Research Institute, eventually took him up on his proposal to actually scientifically study remote viewing because of the success that he had had with some preliminary tests that they had done.
0: You've entered another dimension. You've entered a Paracast.
1: in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Michael Miley, paranormal investigator, joins us. We started off with a little bit of UFOs and a very little bit of <laughs> Billy Meyer. We've had enough of that for tonight. And then we got into his out-of-body experiences. We're getting into remote viewing and what the military has done. And maybe for those who hear these buzzwords and they don't understand what any of this is about, Michael, maybe what we should do now is to define our terms, out-of-body experience and remote viewing, because they seem to be very similar.
5: Well, out-of-body experience is, you know, pretty pretty straightforward. It's, it's what it says. It's the notion that... Our physical bodies are animated by an energy body which can leave under, um, leave the body, physical body under the right circumstances. So the animating spirit of the body and the consciousness of the person leaves the physical form and is able to travel elsewhere out of the body. Now remote viewing, remote viewing by and large is what I would call controlled clairvoyance and the idea is that the person really doesn't leave their body though occasionally remote viewers will sometimes find themselves popping out of the body and going to a location that they're reviewing uh, that they're remote viewing but generally they stay in the body and they see what you might call a controlled clairvoyant movie in their heads or images that come through describing you know the place that they're remote viewing the, the location so remote viewing as it was developed by uh, the military was a set of protocols to not only um, govern the procedure of getting the person into the state where they were able to remote view but a coding uh, language that was used to quickly jot down the kinds of things that the remote view was seeing. So these were combinations of symbols and shorthand and things like that.
1: Well, that's a good question, too, with remote viewing. Is it like seeing a mirror of a reality here that you can actually see what's going on or through a looking glass, or is it something that comes to you in symbols?
5: You know, I think it probably varies to a certain extent. Depending upon the remote viewers, some remote viewers have a more visual remote viewing facility. Others are much more tactful, tactile or auditory. They can they sense the environment that they are remote viewing in different ways. So somebody like Joe McManigal, who's one of the top-notch remote viewers, who was also a very good artist, had a very strong visual sense in his remote viewings. And in some of the tests that he did, for example, had, um, re- he came and he was tested in remote. Viewed the campus of Lawrence uh, Livermore, Berkeley Lab. You see some of the drawings, and his drawings are almost like photographs of what he remote-viewed. He, he, he saw it so clearly. So in his case, he would see things in this kind of sort of... Controlled clairvoyant sight as if he was like uh, an eye floating above the landscape and just sort of panning around what he was seeing. So that's, you know, he was one of the top notch remote viewers, and his stuff is, you know, he had accuracy rates above 90%. Well,
2: above 90%, did you say?
5: In some cases, yeah, above 90%. This guy was just phenomenally good. He was one of the top remote viewers of the world.
2: And he's still this alive. Is this
5: guy still alive? Yeah? Yeah, he's still alive. Yeah, you should he's a really nice guy, too. You should interview
1: him. Well, I think if you could make the introduction for us or tell I could, us. I could. We can, when we get off the air, on. I guess we could have you help that. Because I would like to talk to somebody who's done it. Have you remote viewed because you've had out-of-body experiences? Have you gone to that next level?
5: Um, remote viewing and out-of-body experience, you know, when I asked Joe that, that question, I I said, you know, do remote viewers uh, they, they have a greater facility and out-of-body experience? He said yes and no. He says they're two different phenomena, and sometimes, you know, your practice in the one can interfere with your practice of the other. Hmm. So he felt this, that he was a remote viewer with some experience in and out-of-body, and that was his primary focus because he was, you know, trained to do that. You know,
1: looking uh, at this whole picture, you wonder here, this would be almost having the perfect spy here. If this could be done reliably, you'd be able to sit there. There in a room and see what's going on in Iran or something, and, or North Korea, and know what they're doing. Is our government still seriously looking into this stuff, or has well, this gone by the
5: question. wayside? You know, you know the uh, CIA came out. I think it was. Let's see, what, let me get my years right here. I think it was in ni- on the mid 90s when uh-huh. they came out and made a public statement saying that, oh yes, they had been investigating remote viewing for like uh, you know X number of years, 20 years, and they had spent 20 million dollars and they discovered that, you know, remote viewing was not reliable and that's why they were ending the program. Well, all of that was just a cover for the real situation was remote viewing for certain remote viewers was very successful. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, here we go. So, you know, it was very it was used in espionage situations where they were trying to spy on the Russians. Um, There's a famous case of them spying on an installation in Semipalatinsk. I'm not exactly sure what... We were in Russia that was and one of the top-notch remote viewers done was able to literally you know describe this thing the scene as if he was there and in fact in his case I think that here was a case of a guy whose remote viewing and out of body seemed to sort of blend into each other because the way he described seeing this place in Palestine was as if he was really there like he was floating above the buildings he could see this, this uh, gantry crane on this uh, railroad track he could go into the building he could go and look at inside the file drawers in file cabinets in the building. This guy was just quite remarkable. But he couldn't physically affect
2: anything, though, right? I mean, he couldn't actually have any physical effect on the environment. There was anything more tangible than, let's say, reading an energy change in the environment.
5: That particular guy, his name is escaping me right at the moment. I'm not sure. There is a thing called remote influencing, which is a kind of remote uh, psychokinetic um, ability that some of these remote viewers were actually were also being trained to do so that they could try to, well, the idea is that you would use remote influencing to try to do somebody a heart attack or something like that, so it could be used as an assassination. This
1: is like Darth Vader did in one of the Star Wars movies. Yeah, yeah,
5: just, you know.
1: See, Darth like, Vader was a remote viewer, now we understand.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly.
1: Okay. So this is gets into a much more shadowy area. But we're, no, this gets to be a very shadowy area. The only thing I can assume here is that if they use remote viewers in the CIA or NS Say they must have been out to lunch when they were trying to find those WMDs in Iraq.
5: Yeah, they were out to lunch. Yeah, right, exactly. Or, or, or yeah, something we, like we that. We know all about that. That was just an orchestrated propaganda campaign to, to engineer a war that they wanted, but they had to find ways to justify. it. So all right, so they're
1: using this maybe. They certainly wouldn't admit it publicly because you think they were nuts, but if they're doing this... <sighs> Are the Russians doing it to us? Or are the Chinese doing it to us? Or
5: you know, the whole, Is the Islamic know, the whole,
1: world doing it also? What's going on?
5: No, I, I, I kind of doubt it. But um, the whole reason why the CIA became interested in remote viewing is because the Russians were investigating remote viewing and um, they were doing a lot of amazing research. And, you know, of course, the CIA didn't want to be left behind, and that's why they decided to start funding this research. So largely through Stanford Research Institute, but then there was a, a sort of a military installation on the East Coast where they actually did a lot of the research as well. So, anyway, you know, the, um, the remote viewing stuff is interesting. Um, I actually had one successful remote viewing. It was the first time I ever tried it. Um, there was a remote viewing lecture at this uh, conference, you know, and the woman said um, that she wanted to see us try it in the audience. And so she she shuffled through some envelopes and then held one up in the air and then guided us through a sort of monitored remote viewing session where she told us the symbols to use to describe what was inside the envelope. And um, I did a drawing, and then she... Opened the thing and then put it on an overhead projector so you could see what the image was, and I was spot on. I described exactly what the image showed. It was a single prop engine plane flying over the horizon and below it were trees. Uh, no, below it was water. And I, my drawing was exactly that. That was my one unequivocal successful remote viewing session.
1: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine?
6: Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, Nineteen ninety-five for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
1: So, Bill, how do they place the order?
6: People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295.
1: Bill, give us that contact information again.
6: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina, Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call one 888 ufo MAGA and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card.
4: This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti.
0: You never know what's going to happen next. Let me pause and tell
1: everybody this is the Paracast, and we're remote viewing... Michael Miley, or he's remote viewing mm-hmm. us. I'm remote viewing you guys. Uh-oh, well, then
2: you're in trouble now.
5: I guess I'm in trouble, you know. It's, a, it's not a pretty sight. Yeah, we're both doing YouTube. Well, at least
2: I'm dressed, damn it. Gene, uh, get your pants back on.
5: <laughs> I, wanna, yeah, I wanted to get back to uh, some of the stuff that we started out with. Uh, sure. Uh, because my particular, a particular fascination, um, I guess one of my obsessions has to do with this out-of-body experience stuff, primarily because I've had the experience and primarily because what I believe it shows, if it's true, that we're literally leaving the body is that our conception of um, embodiment of being alive is severely flawed and inaccurate.
1: When you are Um, out of body, do you know that you're really not in your body that you see your body lying in the bed and that's your your indication or do you feel just normal and if you didn't see that you just think you were walking around normally except that you happen to be able to go through walls
5: no, you. It, it's very different you know, um, if you have a full conscious exit, you will know that you're out of your body because of the phenomena that, that occurs, you know, the vibrations the sense of lifting out the, the feelings of projection if you do it from a dream state, it becomes a little bit more ambiguous. One of the other ambiguities in out-of-body states is that some people see themselves in like a phantom form that looks similar to their own. While others don't really see their um, their out-of-body shape shape very well, they see themselves as a point of um, consciousness that extended like a field in the environment.
1: Now, so, can you touch something or is it always just floating through things?
5: You know, when I went through the door when I was a kid, when I had that experience, mm-hmm. I could actually feel the molecular structure of the door as I passed through it. So there was some, there was some kind of interference pattern that was set up between the the sort of, quote-unquote, molecules of whatever energy body I was in and the molecules of the door. You know, But so it was on... You you know, like a, a different phase or a different uh, dimension so even though as i went through the door and i could feel sense the door i was able to pass through
2: one of the things i want to understand that uh, you know there's got to be some kind of a a mapping of what we in normal consciousness think of as sensory input the perception of the real world and then in this other state given that there's got to be some other set of senses deployed yet the way that we perceive the world is through you know our sight our smell, our touch, uh, I would think there does have to be some kind of a strange disconnection or a sense of, you know, something's not quite right here in terms of what you're describing going through a wall. I can almost understand that the the, the sensation of moving through something that's solid, there'd have to be some level of, let's assume for a moment that this is really happening, you know, how do you then interpret the experience of passing through matter, but while we do know that most of matter is actually empty space.
5: Yeah, exactly. It's not really that hard to understand. Uh, you know, the I'm gonna, I want to sort of answer it in a slightly roundabout way. One of the things that out of body experiences often one of the one of the states of um, um, confusion that out of body experiences can sometimes get into deals with the fact that when they leave their bodies, they don't have the sort of forward facing reference point of having your eyes, nose, you know, mouth in mm-hmm. the front, so you're oriented towards you know, walking forward in the out-of-body state you're really essentially a field though you're you, you can sometimes see a phantom of your body, usually you look younger, thinner if you have a very strong body image, so people can can see themselves as phantoms with arms, legs, and fingers, and things like that. Remember when I had my childhood experience, I was extending what I thought were my hand and my forearms, and they felt like huge mitten, you know, energy mittens, and it was basically a kind of a field effect that I associated with having arms and hands. But what happens, though, is that in certain out-of-body states, people realize that they're really just essentially a field of consciousness, a sort of coherence localized field of awareness and they can sometimes pop into a 360 degree spherical sight and this can cause orientation confusion because if you go through your kitchen say and you have your refrigerator on the left hand side and you have your door on the right hand side door leading to the back yard or something like that and you're passing through it and you suddenly pop into that 360 degree spherical sight yeah what's
2: your reference point
5: yeah, what's your reference point? Which direction mm. are you facing, okay?
2: Now,
1: and, it's also, you're not in a situation here where your limitations are that what your eyes are limited to. So if you wear contact lenses or glasses and you uh, you're out of body, face. you don't have those peripherals yeah. there. So see, so you see everything perfectly?
5: You know, hmm. my hmm. experiences of out-of-body are essentially confined to a half dozen spontaneous out-of-body experiences. There are people who are experts at consciously leaving the body. I'm thinking of this British guy by the name of Robert Bruce. He wrote a book that's been published by uh, Hampton Roads Press in Astral Dynamics. He would be somebody, even though he lives in Australia, he'd be somebody that you really should get on to talk about this stuff because this guy is a real expert. This this thing that I'm describing to you of moving from a forward-looking perception to a 360 degrees brings up something very interesting about out-of-body experience, and that is that There is this, when you are oriented towards the physical world, which is what you might call the lowest state of out-of-body experience, there is this interplay between what you expect and what you find, what you project and what you see. Okay? So in the disorienting moment, when you switch to 360 degrees and you don't know if the refrigerator is on the left or the right, what your mind may do for orientation's sake is project an image of a new refrigerator. So that you can be oriented in an environment that's familiar to you.
0: Hmm. And what
5: you're doing is you're kind of superimposing upon the physical environment another environment. And so what you see is in part a projection of your mind. So this gets very confusing and this, this can sort of explain why it is that we get at this mixture of veridical data from a lot of body experiencers with fantasy data. Data that refers to what their mind is projecting. And if you're an inexperienced out-of-body traveler, so I'm told by people like Robert Bruce, you have to learn to discern the difference. So it's very tricky.
2: It's tricky, and and of course, I mean, skeptics would grab onto this and say the minute you introduce the word fantasy into the discussion, uh, you're sort of peeing in the pool. uh, Because it, it starts to make, I think, someone wonder... How much of this is objective experience, and how much of it is subjective perception?
5: Right, exactly. I mean, this is this is a perennial issue when you're discussing out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences.
0: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, Michael Miley, paranormal investigator, talks to us today, and we're talking about a lot of unusual experiences focusing now on out-of-body and related stuff. Go ahead.
5: One of the tendencies for skeptical researchers or skeptical people who are criticizing this kind of research is to say that everything can be put down to sort of subjective states of imagination and hallucination. And as if by saying that because the mind creates these projections, it's, you know, it's impossible to decide what's true and what's not true. Is it fantasy or is it reality? The fact is that human beings are full of fantasy and yet they do science. Human beings are continuously fantasizing about this, that, or the other. Is that a part of reality in fact some of their fantasies are scientific fantasies or scientific dreams then uh, become scientific experiments and scientific devices you know
2: absolutely.
5: So so this relationship between what we imagine and what we see and what is real is by by its very nature ambiguous. And in no way can you say that just because there's a fantasy element in a lot of body experiences that there isn't also a true element. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know, it's an easy thing to say that, oh, yeah, he's just fantasizing, he's just dreaming. the dreaming and fantasy are part and parcel of being a creative human being, and that includes the scientists.
0: Well, sure.
5: Do, you know, if they didn't dream and they didn't fantasize, and they didn't imagine and they didn't have dreams about, you know, benzene rings and molecules and things like that, there wouldn't be any scientific, you know. know.
2: Well, absolutely, Michael. Just in terms of we were talking a couple of shows ago about Nikola Tesla, and Tesla's original uh, understanding of alternating current was indeed a vision. It was a vision, uh, if I remember correctly, while he was looking up at the sun. So, you know, he had this kind of vision of these four fields and this rotating, Element, which ended up becoming the the foundation of, he actually envisioned what became the AC motor before he really figured out the there actual the, the specifics of alternating current. I think there have been a lot of uh, stories about scientists who indeed had these kind of spiritual. You know well, yeah, they were they were they were visionary states. They were yes. they were not completely grounded in physical reality, right. and it became a bridge to some deeper level of understanding. It's just really important that, you know, we, at least from my point of view, it's always important to acknowledge that what we're talking about, like what you said, it's true. We're trying to understand sort of the constructs of reality using what ultimately are our limited minds, at least our limited minds in terms of their physical manifestation here on
0: Earth.
5: Sure, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I had, um, I was going to sort of dovetail to to just sort of unpeel this whole issue of fantasy and reality. A little bit more because it's a very sticky wicket. It's not easy to decide how it is that what we imagine becomes real, and how it is that if we imagine in a certain way, we're actually imagining imagining the the actual structures of reality. Back in the 60s, back again, 1969 was my sort of my big LSD year. I did a lot of psychedelics. You know, I was a typical hippie, and we did psychedelics on the weekends. And I did this, you know, over a span of probably six or eight months you know just every weekend it was you know blasting myself with a lot of these uh, with you know LSD mescaline peyote psilocybin you know marijuana all this kind of stuff you know we had interesting experiences we had fun but after about 5 or 6 months of doing this it started to get very serious for me um And there was a couple of reasons for this. One of the things I noticed about doing um, psychedelics on on such an extreme basis is that I began to develop an alternate reference ego, so that there was the Mike Miley, the straight Mike Miley, and then there was the Mike Miley who is now building up an alternate self in the psychedelic reality. So when I would actually you know, take some LSD, I would have all of the memories of all of the trips that I had had come back to me and all of the details of that. And then when I would come down off of the LSD, I couldn't remember that self. And I began to notice the split in my personality between the real, you know, everyday mundane Michael and the psychedelic Michael. And this became like two mapping systems in the brain, two synaptic webs that was gradually forming. Another thing started to happen to me as I began to have these experiences, and some of them were very unusual. I began to Question my reality, the the you know my very perceptions, and I began to question how it is that me and my friends were using language, and I, I started to get into this, and I was ceasing to be, I was kind of becoming a drag for my friends because whenever I would trip, I would get into this really intense questioning phase, kind of like a Socratic dialogue with my friends, asking them how it is that they meant certain words and what what is it that you know the definitions of those terms were.
1: And I, went, I drove him a little bit. Crazy, I guess, right? It
5: drove them a little crazy. And what happened is the whole process of Socratic inquiry on LSD, which is what I started to get into, had this kind of destructuring effect of the sort of the synaptic web of language in my brain. And this is where it started to get very scary. I began to deconstruct what Chomsky would call the sort of deep structures of language in my brain,
4: the
2: didactic structures.
5: Synaptic structures of language in my brain, how it is that I would map language to what I knew to be real and, you know, what reality was. And so what began to happen, I started to have bad trips and I started to have what I would call a, de- a deconstruction of language in my mind till it what started to happen is that when people would say things to me, I would get this kind of reverberation of connotation in my head where 10, 15 different meanings of what that sentence was would flood into my mind, and I couldn't discern at what level of meaning somebody was saying something to me. So This became terrifying because it, it began to isolate me from human communication. I had to, I went through a phase where I had to reduce language, the simple sort of declarative statements that I would blindly believe in, in order to feel that I was connected to other people. And it, and I started to feel that, you know, that I was just going crazy.
2: This sounds like classic psychosis, Michael. I mean,
5: it was kind of a psychotic, you know, a, a therapist would have called it a psychotic break. And, you know. Again, these are just labels that people put on things for states that people sometimes get into. And, of course, there are a lot of people that we call crazy and living in institutions who had similar experiences that I was having. What we don't fully understand is what it is that they're perceiving in these states. And I was perceiving at at the time that I was going through this sort of corrosive loss of language, I began to have this what I call the psychic barrage of data from elsewhere. And I would start to have vision, and I would start to see, I would look at my arm, and my arm would uh, become invisible. And, I, you know, I thought I was literally going crazy. But there were other things that happened that, were, that I could verify in the physical world. I'll give you an example. During this time I started to practice meditation because I figured that concentrated meditation would help me to get out of this state. So I began to practice it very assiduously. I began to use like a candle and then use a yantra which is basically a geometric shape. And uh, one of the things that I would try to do is I would try to I would close my mind and I would construct a triangle, and then I would construct a second triangle, and then I would construct a third triangle. And I would try to hold these very complex yantra shapes in my mind, and when I got to like four or five or six triangles, then the image in my mind would collapse, and I would begin the reconstruction again. I figured if I learned to concentrate as, as deeply as I could, I could take myself out of this fragmented state that I had been getting into. So...
1: Two seven three zero or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
2: You're in the paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: As we ponder how he got out of this particular situation, which wasn't very (laughs) pleasant, no doubt, I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have our first conversation this evening with Michael Miley, a paranormal investigator. He has been involved in UFO research, altered states of consciousness, and we're learning a mouthful here about some stuff that I guess turned out to be rather unpleasant for you because I guess you were questioning your entire reality as a result of this. Yeah, I
5: was, exactly. Here, here's, the, here, here's two things that I wanted to, two experiences that I wanted to describe to you that had um, physical verification in the external world. You could say that, oh, Mike Miley was just going crazy. He was in some psychotic, psychotic fugue. He was trying desperately to get his mind together. It was all delusion and fantasy, and the poor guy, you know, just needed a good shrink. Here are two experiences that showed that I was actually seeing psychic realities that were true. One evening there was a place in Park Ridge which is a, a suburb of Chicago where um, you know a lot of this stuff happened I was standing in a parking lot outside of this carriage house um, in a church yard where uh, the church had allowed us a lot of us his pippies to just sort of hang out and you know this was our congregating place It was about seven or eight o'clock at night I'm standing in the parking lot and I'm at this stage of my experience with psychedelics I wasn't on psychedelics this night by the way um, but I was having a study having all of these sort of visionary states. Who should walk across the lawn but two friends of mine, this guy named Bill and Dave? And I immediately was able to perceive that Dave was in a really bad way. And my guess was is that he was taking LST and he was on a bad trip. He looked desperate, frantic, anxious, whatever. And his friend Bill was trying to talk him down and trying to, you know, you know, smooth it all out for him. So I thought, intuitively, I said, hmm, I wonder what I can do for Dave. And me. how I knew how to do this. I closed my eyes, I focused, and I imagined that the sky was an infinite reservoir of energy and that I could draw upon it and pull down some of that energy, you know, like from the zero point down into my consciousness and shoot it out towards Dave, kind of like a blessing, a state of blessing towards him. So that's what I did. Inwardly, I perceived when I did that that some energy came into my body and shot out towards Dave and literally blasted him from head to toe. I opened my eyes and I watched, no, I was opening my eyes, I had my eyes open at that point. I watched him stop as he crossed the lawn, shake himself like a a dog shaking water, Hmm. look at me and come striding over and throw his arms around me and hug me and say, Mike, Mike, what did you just do? What did you just do? And I said to Dave, I said, well, I just sent you some love, Dave. (laughs) 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 And he said... I was having one of the worst trips I've ever had, and suddenly this beam of energy came from you, blasted me from head to toe, and I am stone-cold sober. Really? Stone-cold sober? I was, went from tripping state to a complete sober state in the matter of a moment. He says, what did you, you know, and we talked about it some more. And at this time, you know, he decided to think I was some kind of guru and, you know, I had these magical powers and all this other jazz. And what I was discovering was, you know, the psychic realm. I was discovering how it is that people describe, you know, psychic powers and things like that. Two weeks later, I'm meditating in my room late at night, about 11 or 12 at night. I figured I'll do the same thing for Dave again. I sit there in a lotus position in my bed, and I focus on Dave's face. I draw up an image of him in my mind, and I do the same thing. I imagine that the sky is full of energy. I'm pulling it down through my mind and my heart, and I'm shooting it out towards Dave as a blessing. The next day, I'm in the kitchen. It's about 8 or 9 in the morning, 9, 9 or 10 in the morning. The doorbell rings, and who should it be but Dave? He comes in, he lives two houses down from me. He comes in, he's got this sort of quizzical look in his face. I said, come on in, Dave, I'm making some coffee. You know, come on in and, you know, we'll talk. And and they go into the kitchen and uh, he says to me, Mike, he says, were you doing something weird last night? And I said, why do you ask? He said, (laughs) because along about 11 or 12 last night, all of a sudden you appeared at the foot of my bed said my name and freaked me. He says you were there for about five or ten seconds, you form and then you disappeared.
2: Now, had he ever told you about something similar? Had he ever had any kind of other experience that... What was his own belief system in terms of the
5: well, he had a lot of he had a lot of uh, experiences with psychedelics himself, but the point that I'm trying to make here is that... I inadvertently have projected a phantom form to my friend Dave who and he perceived it. Hmm. So I had stumbled into some of the same kinds of things that the same kinds of it's what we call it, faculties that out of body experiencers have who are able to leave the body at will. They project a sort of an energy body from out of their physical body and go places, and I did that to a certain extent unconsciously and without even knowing it, that I had projected a sort of uh, doppelganger of myself to my friend Dave. And the only reason why I bring this stuff up is because is that in the midst of a lot of these unusual experiences where people feel as if they're, own, as they're going crazy and they're in some sort of a spiritual crisis and they're having psychological turmoil, there are real, verifiable phenomena that occur in the midst of all of that confusion. So it's not so easy to to, to, to make an easy distinction between deluded states and states that have a veridical data to them. In fact, sometimes delusions that people have can act as focal points to focus their consciousness and their energy in such a way that they manifest psychic abilities. And... Um,
2: well, I wonder which drives the other. Does the psychic ability, you know, create those focal points, or is it a, some sort of a feedback loop?
5: You know, the things. one of the things we can say about the effects on psychedelics on the body is that when you are taking psychedelics, you generally feel a whole different energy frequency. Sometimes you feel extremely energetic or you know other times it's just the opposite you know a lot of experiences when people get stoned on grass they feel like they can't hardly move their body their bodies are catatomic you know they have very little physical energy yet inwardly they're perceiving a lot of energy so it's, you know, it somehow works both on energy levels, frequencies, the, the, the lesson to be drawn from some of these experiences is that psychedelics change the habitual frequencies at which the human awareness operates. And when you change those frequencies out of their base patterns, you are then able to perceive alternate realities that exist at those frequency levels. That's, I think, the conclusion that should be drawn from this. Hmm. Uh, so that's you know these are just some of my theories from my own experience and um, I um, during this whole period you know which would seemed to be a crisis I began to manifest these sort of psychic abilities I began to make experiments with telepathy uh, I can give you an example of this please uh, we were um, the one of the other places that we hung out this is you know 1969 70 71 in Park Ridge was this uh, ballet studio above a pipe shop, where uh, which was uh, run by a man and his wife who befriended a lot of us hippies and outcasts. And they uh, arranged with a ballet studio to keep it open for us on Friday and Saturday nights after the ballet classes were over. So one night, I'm there. This time, um, I was stoned on grass, and I went up to the ballet studio, and the, you know, the usual crowd of people, there 50 or 60 people, and at this time in my explorations, I, as I began to see these, these sort of psychic fields, I noticed that as I watched um, the interchange in the room, I noticed that above everyone's head, like sort of plasma, were these very pliable fields of energy that seemed to bounce back and forth between people. There was some sort of energy exchange that was going on, and I could actually perceive the field itself rather than just, you know, seeing people talking together, you know, and exchanging, you know, conversation and, you know, hugging each other, whatever. So I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder what these plasma fields are. I wonder if I can manipulate them in some way. So I picked out of the crowd a woman who I knew who uh, who I guessed was slightly psychic. And it was sort of just an intuitive feel that I felt that she had some sort of psychic abilities. So she's standing there talking to my friend Dave, who I referred to before. And uh, what I did was was I mentally did the same thing. It's like I was doing a mental gathering of energy above my head, and I projected streams of it towards her while she was talking to Dave. And every time I did that, I watched her stop in the conversation, look up, as if something had just sort of tapped her on the shoulder and then resumed her conversation.
0: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
2: Let me pause a second, Michael, tell
1: sure. everybody you're in the paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have Michael Miley, paranormal investigator, joining us talking about altered states of consciousness right now. Of course we have a little dog in the background who is a critic
0: Surely if my
1: conversation, not of David's or
0: Michael's, (laughs) let's proceed
1: for one more section here because we don't have a lot of time left, but I'd like to continue this very fascinating discussion. So Michael, please go ahead.
5: So um, I did this a few times, and I uh, began to notice that I could actually physically affect her through this manipulation of these so-called plasma fields that I could feel, see above her. I know it all sounds crazy, but that's exactly what I was doing. So in order to do one more final test, there was this one woman who I was crazy about all the way across the room looking out the window, and she was, you know, waiting for her boyfriend. And this is what I guess. So I thought, "Hmm, I'm going to try to make her sit right down next to me. So I did the same thing. I did my little meditation. I manipulated the plasma fields, and I blasted her. And this time, on the blast, I said, come here. And I watched. And, you know, there's 60 people in the room milling about. And so, you know, I'm sort of like peeking through the crowd as the people mull about, and I'm watching this woman looking out the window. And I watch as she turns, and the first person her eyes lay on when she looks into the room is me. She promptly gets up from her chair, walks (laughs) through the crowd, and sits down right next to me and says, Hi, Michael. And I just burst out laughing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's one way to get to know somebody. Yeah.
5: She says, uh, So, what's going on, Mike? You're looking very wicked tonight. I said, If you only knew... You know uh-huh, and boy. so, so I did these sets of experiments, and the first woman, we actually did some you know planned experiments where we would you know try to send each other signals and things like that, and we had some modicum of success with it. So anyway, just to sort of sum up what I'm trying to say here is that um, um, the effect some of the effects of the psychedelic experience were to liberate certain kinds of energy within my system to enable me to do these sort of psychic things for a time, for probably about a two year period, and then gradually, you know, I stopped doing psychedelics on such a basis, and these effects seemed to wear off and I became much more, you know, normal, and average, and like that.
1: We don't have a lot of time left, and I know that we can probably pursue any aspect of what you're talking about for another three shows. And maybe yeah. we could kind of focus on this just for a moment and bear with me here, and oh, yeah. that is that We're talking here about various experiences, in part generated by psychedelic drugs, in part dream states, whatever, meditation states, whatever might cause these things. On the other hand, on this show, we talk about physical things, supposedly, UFOs, photographs, real or fake, whatever, and as our listeners know, we are taking a lot of what you have to say quite seriously for, because of either personal experiences or experiences of other people that David and I have followed, so maybe the question to ask here is, is the practical value of this is more self-understanding or what? What do you think, in the end, is the practical value? Of no, all the
5: things a, that we're talking about here, that's a that's a really good question. You know, in fact, it was um, one of the ways I wanted to wind up this conversation because uh, what happened as we came out of the 60s, not only doing psychedelic research but other kinds of altered states research, is that we discovered that the human being is capable of a lot of different states that we didn't even suspect before that people can be aware of the reality um, in different states of mind and, and perceive aspects of the reality that were used to be hidden. And so one of the things that came out of this was various forms of spiritual quest. And in part, this, this happened because people had a lot of peak experiences, including myself, you now coming out of the 60s into the 70s and 80s. And some of the experiences they had were of a qualitative difference from these psychic states that I'm describing to you. And I'll give you a very brief um, description of one that I had in 1970. This was not on LSD, this was after I had taken the LSD, you know, after 1969, which is the year that I had done done a lot, of, and I had been shaken up by this whole this whole experience. And this, particular experience, I was having a conversation with a friend. Uh, This was 1970. And this was after a lot of this turmoil that I had been describing. The conversation had to do with my Catholic upbringing and my religious belief system. My friend was an atheist. I was sort of like a closet Catholic, still believed in a lot of the teachings. And he was asking me, you know, about the nature of my belief system. And he said to me, uh, he said, have you ever read The Atheist? Like, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus and people like that. And I said, no, I hadn't. And he said, well, why not? He said, I said, well, because they're probably smarter than me, and what if they convince me of something that's not true? (laughs) And uh, he said, well, Mike, you just have to have some faith and trust that um, the world is going to show itself to you the way it really is. Which I thought was a very good answer. And I said, okay, uh, Eric, I will read Sartre and Camus. And, um, you know, you can lend me some of your books and I'll read them. So this is at a party's house. He goes off to the party. I'm sitting on the front porch. And what happened in me was that I let go of my belief system because I realized that my belief system was based on fear, the fear that it had been instilled in me by the Catholic priest, the belief system that I held, which you know dangled me over the abyss of hell, if I didn't believe in, you know, that whole belief system. And I found myself inwardly really letting it go. When I disidentified with that belief system, something very profound happened. I started to feel as if all my emotions became utterly calm. Is that up until that point, there was sort of like a choppy sea, and everything sort of became be calm, that I felt myself as if I was sinking down into this cool, dark well, and everything was coming into a sort of settled point. And I had an intuition that something profound was about to happen to me. So I got up and I wanted to be alone. I got up, I went through the party, went upstairs to his bedroom where I know he used to put candles and, you know, people would sometimes retreat to have private conversations and things like that. I went into the room. There was one friend sitting, uh, listening with a headphone set to uh, a radio. And I said briefly hello and I sat down on the floor. And when I sat down on the floor, the experience suddenly deepened and it was as if my consciousness was flooded with light. It was as if somebody had come into the room and poured this molten light into the crown of my skull and it sort of like dripped down into the sort of pineal gland in the center of my brain and it just sort of like burst open. And when that happened, I found myself looking around the room, and I saw that the whole of reality was suspended in a void of light, and that this void of light was infinite, that it embraced everything. And I felt ecstatic. And then the experience continued. This sort of molten light seemed to sort of like drip down into my heart, and then my heart just sort of like expanded. And my mind and my heart became sort of like one cognitive principle And when I looked into this void of light, I discovered that this light was a kind of creative light that sustained everything. And I discovered that I was this light, but there was no separation between me and this light. So here was a classic mystical unity experience, and this unity experience was beyond any psychic experience I had before. And the effects it had on my personality was, you know, these are sort of like supernal terms. Peace, love, insight, compassion, fearlessness. The fear that I had before was all gone.
1: I know somebody who went through very much this
5: effect. Yeah. So the practical effect here of some of this stuff is this, and this is where the spiritual stuff comes in, is that at the tail end of all of these explorations, we have discovered, rediscovered, if you will, some of the central key issues that the mystical side of religion has been talking about for millennia. And this experience that I'm describing to you is what I call foundational experience. It's an experience of the human essence, which, in, depending on whatever terminology you want to use, has to do with the Atman becoming Brahman, or the soul becoming one with God, or the awareness of being, or the essential self. And when a person experiences this, they come out of their fragmented, anxious defensive self and they discover what they have talked about for centuries as the real self. That's the practical Mm -hmm. benefit. The practical benefit of that is you are now a whole person. You are who you should be, not who society has made you to be because of your conditioning.
1: You know what? This is, like I said the beginning, a very nice beginning, very pleasant beginning. Michael Miley, I'm glad to know you and glad to hear your experiences, and I hope we can explore this and other topics further on future episodes of the Paracast. Thanks for joining us.
5: Excellent. Thanks, Michael. I'm glad to be here. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
6: This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at Mr. UFO at WebTV.com. .net. It's all out of this world. I'll
1: tell you, Michael Miley is so fascinating. You know,
6: that's almost an out-of-body
1: experience to hear what this <laughs> gentleman has <laughs> undergone, really. And some, really, he's he an interesting, interesting cat. cat. Very, yeah. very. And I gather this is yeah. maybe one hundredth of what he could talk about. And we're going to have him on future shows to talk about also his UFO research, since we've talked about that. And if, in case you didn't hear the first part of the show, I'll tell you one more time, we're going to have... Michael Horn, another Michael, Michael Horn, the American media representative of Billy Meyer Contacts, he's going to return to the paracast with a face off Michael Horn and David Biedney. David has spent a lot of time analyzing a specific photograph of an alleged UFO. And we're going to see a lot of that stuff coming out on our website, theparacast.com. But this is going to be a very fascinating episode. We're going to really want to know where it leads and how Michael Horn responds to many of David's concerns. Well, this, in the meantime, has been a fascinating run up to next week's debate. First of all, we have an active forum discussion on this called Michael Horn and the Billy Meyer Contacts on our Paracast. Forums at thepowercast.com. So check thepowercast.com for our message forums. And I'll remind you one more time we have that poll active right now where you can decide whether you believe it or not. You have three options yes, no, not sure and vote the way you want. The system is set up to accept only one vote per person. So let's not try to pack the results. Let's see exactly what happens. We welcome your input. And we hope that if you have any further questions or comments about this subject and others, maybe to suggest a guest, you send your letters to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And of course, there's lots more excitement coming up on the Paracast. The
0: Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.